We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Let's take a look here. What I want to do is show you in this uh, Proverbs 10 text, the New Testament uh, accompaniment of the text, what it means in the New Testament. If you would flip just real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, in verse uh, uh, 30 and following, this is what this Old Testament text means in the New Testament. Uh, Corinth is a Greek city, and in the Greek philosophy that had been going on for 300 years before the gospel came, it was Greek philosophy. And if you know anything about Greek philosophy, it teaches that physical corporeal matter is inherently evil, and it's less to be desired. That's why a platonic relationship you have with a uh, another person is not physical, it's purely spiritual. And so the Greeks held that the notion of God who became a human body and a man was detestable. Uh, they used to have a saying that said, the doctrine of the resurrection is as the doctrine of swine. So the idea of a God who became a man and that man who, the divine being died, and that that we had, that he rose from the dead physically. You remember when Paul preached at Mars Hill in Athens and he spoke about the resurrection and when he spoke of the resurrection, they began to mock him. How can you say this? That God would let his presence be invaded by stuff, by physical matter. And so they scorned the incarnation. They scorned the atonement. They scorned uh, the resurrection of Christ and the idea that we would be resurrected, that Christ would be our first fruits, and that we would be resurrected from the dead was an abomination. And uh, does the world quite often think crazy things about God? Only always, okay. The church has to stand against it. What the Corinthians did was they let them inside, and they began having leaders within the Corinthian church. Uh, you remember they had a guy that was living with his father's wife, his uh, what would that be? Your stepmother, right? Is that right? I don't say nothing stupid. And uh, the church, Paul said, you have not mourned about it. You've become arrogant at how much freedom that you had. And they felt that there was no reason to curtail your body on what it felt. You could do anything you wanted to. You could be immoral because it was a physical body. It didn't matter. What was important was the super spiritual relationship you had to God. Um, okay. And so Paul challenged that. And in chapter 15, it's about the resurrection. It's the central text in the Bible about the resurrection of the body. And just pick up with me on his last argument. You see chapter 15, verse 30? It begins with why, and in verse 32, what does it profit me? Why and what? So Paul asked, for to deny the resurrection is to deny Christianity. And he said in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Meaning, why do I put my life in jeopardy every hour over the doctrine of the resurrection? If there is no resurrection, it doesn't matter. If you just end your life and we're gone, it doesn't matter what we do. And so why do I put myself in harm's way to preach this message? And in verse 31, I affirm daily by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ, 
meaning by the assurance we have of Christ's salvation. I die daily that the reason I wake up and preach this and risk my life is that I believe my boast in Christ is that we are saved and will be raised from the dead someday. Why would I do that on a gospel that does not save? And then he says in verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Do y'all remember when he was at Ephesus and they filled a Colosseum and shouted, great is Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians? And Paul said, boy, what a great audience. I'll go preach. And they grabbed him and they said, you'll be torn apart like wild beasts. You'll be a gladiator. You'll be killed. And Paul said, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts, what does it profit me? He said, if there is no resurrection, no eternal motive, why would I do this and risk being killed by a bunch of people that disagree with me? Uh, he says, rather in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, what's the conclusion? It's not that we should go out and risk our life for this phony message. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and tomorrow we die. If there is no life after death, then let's just go have a party. Let's just go get drunk. Let's have an orgy because that's what the Greeks held to, that there was not all of them. They were all seeking virtue. They just didn't know what it was, but they felt that it didn't really matter what you did with the physical body. And so Paul says, if there is no resurrection, let's just go be immoral. And in verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The bad company and context were the false teachers that got in denying the Christian message. Is it ever possible within the church and our history for the church to hold to the ideas, the words of what we believe, but change the meaning because the world doesn't like him. I believe in the Bible, I just don't think it's inerrant. I believe in Christ, I just think he's a good man, I don't think he's God. I believe that he died for sin, but he wasn't the substitute for what we did, he died because he wasn't quick enough to get out of Jerusalem. I believe that there's life after death, but it's not gonna be a physical body, it's just ethereal. And so we take, historically, great ideas of the Christian faith. We hold to the words and deny the meaning. And that's what they were doing at Corinth. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company, meaning the guys that are teaching you this tripe, they're going to produce, verse 32, an orgy. They're going to produce drunkenness. They're going to produce a guy living with his stepmother and laughing about it. So don't be deceived that ideas are very important when they are ideas about the ultimate issues of God, man, salvation, evil, and redemption. Those are the most important things about you. And so, verse 34, be sober-minded. Get your head screwed on right and stop sinning. How's that for a simple sermon? Get your head right and quit your sinning. Because, verse 34, some have no knowledge of God. You know what that means in the context? You have guys teaching in your church that aren't Christians. They don't believe in the fundamental message. And then he says in verse 34, I speak this to your, what's the last word? 
shame. Paul says, shame on you for having these guys in your pulpits that deny the apostolic and Christian-centered message and produce immorality, and you guys keep paying them to corrupt lives. This is a message I'm going to give to a lot of American denominations as soon as they invite me to their annual conference. <laughs> that it's amazing how many godless ideas are proliferated in our country that are sponsored by the Christian church. And we keep paying for these guys to deny God, the Trinity, Christ, the atonement, the incarnation, and produce immorality and perversion and we pay for it. And Paul says, shame on you. So what's the important about this? Uh, if Christ is not raised, let's be immoral. Don't be deceived. Bad company, guys building into your life can ruin you. Amen. So I thought about what should we name this sermon? We should call it, what's in your wallet? Or better still, what's in your brain? Who's talking to you? Ever so often, I'll get some guy that comes in that had previously been faithful, and all of a sudden, he starts talking crazy. Let's see. Where are they? They're, they're somewhere. They start talking crazy. You know what I say to them? I say, who's been talking to you? You didn't get this on your own. What channel are you tuned to? somebody's putting this stuff in you. Garbage in, garbage out. The idea of an infinite personal God that gives his word inerrantly, that loves us, dies for our sin, and is our standard of holiness, that's a very invigorating idea. When you remove God and put man's subjectivity, you're going to get an orgy at some point. And so go back to chapter 10 of Proverbs, because that's what Proverbs is about. This text from verse 10 or rather verse 8 down through verse 12, is what's in your wallet? Who is talking to you? You uh, parents that have sent kids off to college, is that an unnerving experience? Because you're going to have all people building into their lives, and you're hoping that that kid has the plumb line of the Scripture to be able to discern. And so in verse 8, a wise man, the wise of heart will receive commands. A wise man is not stiff-necked and stubborn to God's law and God's word. He accepts the authority of God's word. The book of Lamentations says, let a man put his face in the dust when he is young to bear the yoke of Christ, to submit to authority, to the authority of God. All the creatures that God creates are hardwired. They act a certain way because they have to, except for Adam and Eve. They can either be angelic or demonic, whichever way they want to go. They can follow God or they can follow the serpent. One leads to life and one leads to death. And so the wise man accepts the authority of the word. It goes something like this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and then reproof, bad human. And then for correction, and then training. So to come to the Bible, you have to have a submissive attitude. Proverbs says uh, at another place, reproofs of discipline are the way of life. When you see a young kid 
that is listening to his elders, listening to the church. It's, it's like God's got his hand on that boy. If I see a girl like that, I try to match her up with my grandson. Okay. Right now. Okay. And so he accepts the authority of the word and he accepts the divine institutions. He is a good citizen in the government. He is a, um, a good husband, a good wife, a good child in the home. They are good workers and good uh, owners in the workplace. And they are in the church. They, uh, you younger men submit yourself to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God's pose to the, to the proud gives grace to the humble. And so whenever you see people that are submissive to God, they will be submissive to men in the sense of, I'll be a good citizen, a good worker, a good Christian, and a good uh, whatever else I said, okay, and good in the home. How many of you remember a guy way back in the 70s named Bill Gothard? He had called the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. He was a, a youth director in uh, Chicago, and he noticed that all the kids that were struggling that he worked with had basic youth conflicts. He said they struggled all with moral impurity, and then they struggled with... Uh, eternal values or temporal values. And they struggled with uh, bitterness and learning to forgive. And then he said they all struggled with authority. At me humbling myself beneath God and the school, the workplace, my home, my parents. There's a proverb that says this, the eye that mocks its father and scorns its mother, the birds of the air will pluck it out. Whenever a guy in Israel would get capital punishment, they would hang him on a tree. Cursed is he who dies on a tree. To be an example, they would take him down at sundown. And it was felt that while you were hanging on the tree, whenever carnivorous birds come, vultures, ravens, Whenever you see the armadillo on the road, are you with me? What do they start eating first? The soft tissue. They go to your eyes. And so Solomon is saying in Proverbs, show me a kid that is a rotten, delinquent kid, and that's a kid that's going to go to the chair. He is going to be put to death someday because that's where it starts. Children, honor your parents in the Lord, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it might be well with you and that you might live long on the earth. Whenever I see a kid that is rebellious against the parents, I'm thinking, son, here's my card. You're going to need me here in a little bit because you're about to have a long, unhappy life. Amen. All you high school seniors, come back up here for me. And just, let me just preach to you because this is a fact. It's interesting that never in the Bible do you find a significant person that has a problem with authority. Not one time. They grow in favor with God and with men. It starts in Genesis 3, the serpent. Has God said, Eve, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? You shall not eat you can eat freely of every tree in the garden. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it or touch it, 
lest you surely die. That's what God said. Satan said, that's a lie. You will not die. God says this, Eve, I say different. And as a matter of fact, I think God says that because he's not good. And he knows that once you break free of him, you're going to be like him and won't need him anymore. And you can be happy without God. His word is not true. He is not good. And there is no ultimate judgment for sin. Believe me, Eve, I am a snake. Okay. And she did. And here we are. And so it's a problem with authority. I will not have this man rule over me. So, verse 8, the wise of heart at some point has a come to Jesus meeting that one of us is going to run this thing. It's going to be me as God or it's going to be you, but it's not going to be both of us. What's in your wallet? Okay. And in verse 8, Here's another guy, a babbling fool. The fool is not interested in hearing what the truth is. He's only interested in yapping about what he thinks truth is. And so, the babbling fool, what's the last word of verse 8? He will be what? Ruined. And so, when you refuse God, you now have to exalt yourself and tell what you believe, and that is going to end in ruin and the opposition to God. In verse 9, the encouragement continues. If you will obey, he that walks in integrity walks securely. The Hebrew word for integrity means completeness, that you don't have a public life and a private life that is corrupted. It's called being a hypocrite. The, the uh, English word integrity is from the word integer. That means one, integrate, oneness. Integrity means that I can have a private life with God that shows itself in a moral public life. That there's, I'm not worried about being found out. There's a, the integrity of a knee, of the joint, means that all the parts of your joint work together. Remember when you had joints? All right. It's because it had integrity. That's why doctors don't like to operate if they don't have to, because we don't want to destroy the integrity of the knee. Let it stay together. And so if you will, in verse 9, walk with integrity and be consistent with God in all of your life, you will walk securely. You'll never have to worry about being found out. If you're an adulterer, a porn addict, a liar, a slanderer, an embezzler, tax evasion, a Ponzi scheme, a thief, or in you're in a, in a gang, you're always worried about being found out, flipped on, discovered, audited. They're going to come get you. Y'all remember the Edgar Allan Poe uh, telltale heart? The guy murders the guy. The cops come. And he hears that heart beating that's going to show everybody what he did. But it ain't the old man's heart beating. Whose heart is it? It's his. It's his adrenaline pumping because he's about to go to the chair. And so, tell-tale heart. 
If you live with integrity, you never lose sleep about being found out. Uh, But at the end of verse 9, you pervert your ways, meaning that you do opposite from what God says. You're always waiting for the knock at the door. When I was in seminary, there was a deal that was happening in downtown around the apartments in Dallas of a man was breaking in on single women and sexually molesting them. All right. He would not rape them, but he would sexually molest them and then head off. All right. And so this was kind of a serial molester. Well, it turned out that one of the ladies that had got molested was listening to Christian radio and heard a voice and said, that's the voice. It was a guy that was an adjunct professor. It was a guy that was a Bible church pastor. It was a guy that was a speaker for InterVarsity and a guy that was uh, a, um, in the Navy. He was in uh, nuclear power, an elevated officer. It was him. They found him. They put him in prison. Isn't it interesting that the voice of duplicity was the voice that caught him? He just got too famous. Isn't that a terrible story? (laughs) But it is. He that corrupts his way in time, they're going to find you. Well, he goes on in verse 10. So how does the babbler get ahead? He winks his eye. He connives, he gets in and he flatters, he deceives, he sneaks, he creeps, he usurps, he winks with the eye and causes trouble. Y'all ever been in an organization, a business, a uh, educational board, on a, any kind of board, and there's somebody on there that has a Napoleon complex and he wants to run things but he hadn't earned the right. And so what he does, he starts to talk around the water cooler. Remember Absalom? Your claims are just. Well, you hadn't heard him yet. Yeah, but they're just. He flatters. No one's going to listen to you in the king's office. Now, I wish somebody would make me king because he's not living up to it. If I were judge, man, I would fix everything. You remember that? And it said he does it for two years, and he leads away the heart of Israel, gets a coalition, finds a guy to get behind him uh, named, uh, I believe his name is Abner, and he, no, wrong guy. He leads a rebellion against David. What happened to to, uh, Absalom? Caught by his hair in an oak tree and put to death on the tree by Joab. And so this is what these fellows do, is that they babble and they create a division. Jude says it like this, they flatter for the sake of gaining an advantage. And in verse 10, he winks the eye and causes division and trouble. And then it says he elevates himself, a babbling fool. And what's the last word in verse 10? 
ruin. The thought is, be wise and don't follow these people. Follow verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. How many of you are my age and remember the 60s? The 60s were a classic time where we rejected the authority of God and then we put men in their place. We put babblers. Sometimes listen to a 60s station to the music and just don't get caught up in the beat for a second and just listen to the words and you just shake your head going, I was the stupidest human being that ever lived to ever listen to it. So you reject God, you put man in its place. And uh, to be honest, we've never recovered from the 60s. We got rid of the Bible. We got rid of the dignity of man. God help you if you're an infant in the womb. We got rid of sexuality as it should be. We got rid of marriage. We got rid of normalcy. And we put stuff in its place. And now we are imploding. And so he says, don't do it. It goes like this. Even though they knew God, they would not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their reasonings. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the perfect God for an image in the form of man, birds, four-footed creatures, and snakes. Man will worship a snake. And so he will be ruined. In verse 11, rather do this. Find the mouth of the righteous instead of a babbling fool. Come to the mouth of the righteous because it is a fountain of, what's the last word? Life. How many of y'all remember a guy in our church that passed away about 10 years ago named Jerry Strader? He was a dear. You remember him, Steve? He had a voice. He never needed a microphone. His voice would cut through steel. He talked in the nose kind of like this, and you could hear him six miles away. Worked for the Navigators. And uh, his dear wife, uh, Marquita, passed away, gosh, 25 years ago. Then Jerry passed away. And I visited him just before he died. And he said, tell me that story about the White Rock Marathon again. He died a couple of days later. And I visited him. He had cancer. And... Uh, I told a story in church about running the White Rock Marathon. And I, it's 26 miles, 385 yards. And on about mile 23, they had a Highland bagpipe guy playing uh, Amazing Grace. And I thought I had died. Okay. <laughs> I'm coming up like this, and then I hear, <laughs> I said, it's got an Erica. Yeah. But he wasn't. And I, what it was doing is it was encouraging you on the last stretch run grace. And you look up and you see the finish line. And just like heaven, there's your loved ones welcoming you home. Okay. There was my wife and my kids and they were there to receive me. And, uh, I told Jerry, I said, that's, yeah, I said, that's the way that death is, that God is there like he was with, with, uh, uh, Stephen. I'm with you. Paul said, there is laid up for me the crown which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. He's with me. God stood with me and strengthened me. And uh, Jerry, you could see the tears come down because he knew it wasn't long. And I think it was the next day he got up to go to the car and he fell over. 
Now, just before I left him, I walked out the door. I said, Jerry, I love you. I'll be seeing you later. And he said, I'll see you. And then he said, stay close to the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> Straighter. <laughs> Meaning, keep your nose in the book. Keep your nose in the book. I don't know about you, but I can always tell the nature of a man or a woman by their library. Who are you listening to? I'm going to read the Bible. Jesus has 1,934 verses attributed to him in the Gospels. Do you know that? Uh, 179 of those statements are Old Testament quotations. About 8% of Jesus' words were Bible. And so I am going to go to my Bible, and it's going to be the lens by which I judge all things. David said, in thy light, we see light. I can understand things by the infinite personal God and what he said. Uh, the fool, in verse 11, it, his mouth sounds good, but it conceals. What's your last word in verse 11? Violence. We had a guy in Waco, Texas, my hometown, and he felt that he was the second coming of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would lead Israel back into the promise, just like Cyrus brought Israel back into the promised land after the Babylonian captivity. And so he changed his name from whatever it was. It was David something. He changed it to David Koresh, that he was the second coming of Cyrus, whom God called his Messiah to take Israel back. And he even felt that he was the beginning of the last days. He was the sixth seal of Revelation. And so he would not come out from his compound until he would write down the word of God as it came from him. Now, the fact is, uh, I knew a lot of those guys that were happening there. As a matter of fact, one of my uh, high school coaches was uh, Earl Harwell that was the sheriff in Waco. And uh, on movies on Koresh, you'll see him portrayed. And so he knew Koresh. And the fact is, the reason Koresh didn't want to come out uh, wasn't because he had weapons that he shouldn't have. It's that he was getting 14-year-old girls pregnant. He was a pedophile. And he didn't want people to come in there and catch him because he knew he was going to prison. And so he took his life by his own hand. So anytime you get a guy, and he didn't just want other girls, he didn't want other wives, which he had. He wanted your wife. He wanted yours. And he would populate things with his kids. People followed him, and they died in horror. You remember Jim Jones? He didn't just like little girls. He liked little boys. He led 900 to their death in British Guiana. You ever heard of Charlie Manson? He said, they were your children that came to me because you didn't take care of them. I took care of them. And he gave them all the drugs they wanted and they would give him his sexual desires and they would even do his bidding in destroying what he thought would be the son of Doris Day 
that kept him out of the music industry. Turned out it wasn't him, it was Sharon Tate. And he put them to death. And so that's Charlie Manson. And he had a family that would follow him. It was interesting, but most of the families of those three men were not old people, they were young people. And so, just like he says, the mouth of the wicked, once you get past them, you're gonna find corruption. I've learned something about cults. Incidentally, Joe Smith of the Mormons had about 20 some odd wives. He didn't want other wives. He wanted your wife, all right? And he would populate the world in a super race of which the last doctrine that he held to was the divination of man. You got to be your own God, okay? And he died violently. Well, the mouth of the fool conceals it because it's coming. Uh, our day has rejected the fountain of life and it has turned to what uh, Rousseau thought and the Romantics thought and Thoreau thought and then what uh, Hegel thought and Marx thought and then what Lenin thought and then what Nietzsche thought, and what Hitler thought, has that been a little problem? It has been. And so this is what God says to Israel is going to happen to you. You're surrounded by Moabites, Ammonites, Girgashites. You're surrounded by Edomites. Let them go. We are believers in the one true God, and we don't want to hear what they believe. We know what you can't do better than a triune, infinite, personal God who loves us, gives his word, gives creation, will, will die for us upon the cross, grant us new life by the Holy Spirit, raise us from the dead, guide our lives and take us to glory and make new heavens and a new earth that are the final resting place of his elect. Amen. You can't do better than that. Anything you do is an infinite digression. How many of you remember Francis Schaeffer? You should read everything that he wrote. He was saying this stuff in the 1960s. This was coming. He lived in Switzerland and he saw it coming. It's coming. He said, and he gave an illustration. When I was a young guy, I was, guess I was 23, I got to hear him speak in Arlington. And he was up there with his little goatee and his knickers, all right? And he was speaking. And I just listened to him. You know, he had a speech impediment. He couldn't say an L. He would talk about the artist Michelangelo. And I didn't know that, but I would listen to him. I got up in the front row and just watched him. And I remember him saying that if you go to Italy, he was European. He said, if you go to, he's from Philadelphia. But he said, if you go to Italy, you'll find over all the streams in Italy, little humpback bridges that the Romans built. They were great bridge builders. That's why the head guy was called the Pontifex Maximus, the head bridge builder which title the Pope took for himself. But you would go over these little humpback bridges, and he said, those bridges will hold up foot traffic, because that's what they were meant to when they were built. But if you drive a car or an 18-wheeler over them, they're not equipped for modern man, and they crush. And he said, whenever we get rid of God and we put things in its place, he said to us, and we were all young that were listening to him. We were rebellious kids that had come out of the 60s that wanted truth. And he said, when you replace God with modern philosophy or science, you'll still hold to semantic words that have no ultimate meaning. 
You'll talk about God, a G-O-D. You'll talk about life. You'll talk about love, justice, and all this stuff. But it doesn't mean what God meant it to be. And it won't stand up to modern inspection. And he said, it will come down. And he said to us, this system we have of secular humanism, that we're getting rid of God and we're putting man in his place. He said, you're going to get by with it for a generation. But then more deep minds are going to investigate it. And it's going to implode. And what it always implodes into, and that is the oppression of man and the, the outpouring of lust. There's going to be lust and there's going to be murder. He said, just stay here. He was prophetic. And so when you reject God and you put something in his place, it's going to hold up to your traffic. But in time, it's going down. And so the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. David Koresh, it's coming. And in verse 12, summary statement, hatred. When you get rid of God, hatred stirs up. What's the last word? Strife. Are you noticing how the author continually will take words and put them in juxtaposition? Life, strife, life, death, ruination, life. This is where it's coming. Hatred is going to stir up strife. Uh, meaning the truth is going to emerge and we're going to have a burning compound. We're going to have 900 people dead from the Kool-Aid that they ingested. We're going to have dead people in LA from murder following this man. It's going to happen. In verse uh, 12, but love, submission to God, it doesn't create strife. It covers, which is the word used for the atonement, Yom Kippur, that you smear it and under the blood of the lamb, you can't see the sin. Love is going to cover all transgressions. That is mentioned twice in the New Testament, once by Peter, once by James. That's the way that Christians live. They are people of love and forgiveness and peace. So you're going to get peace or you're going to get hatred, depending on which path that you follow. And so I'm done. What's in your wallet? Who you following? During the Middle Ages, the papacy didn't want anything interrupting their power structure and their accumulating of wealth. And so they had what was called the index of forbidden books, things you couldn't read. Couldn't read Luther, couldn't read Huss, sure couldn't read Calvin. You know what else you couldn't read? You know what else was on the index of forbidden books? The Bible. We can't have these guys thinking for themselves. In 1800s, mid-1800s America, you know what was illegal in the South? Teaching a black guy to read because he might read his Bible and we're going to have problems. You ever heard of Nat Turner? He was a pastor. So we can't let these guys read. Keep them ignorant. The Third Reich... They had, the Nazis had book burnings of anybody that would not conform to Hitler. They came out with the Barman Declaration, a bunch of pastors that says, no, we're going to submit to God. And they tried to put him to death. One of them they did, called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, today in Russia, the state makes sure that they govern what comes in and the input 
into that country. We can't have them thinking for themselves. How many of you remember Radio for Europe? Yeah, we overpowered them and their mechanics, and we came in with the gospel message, and we came in with freedom, whether they liked it or not. That was Radio Free Europe. And so, if I'm the devil, bad company corrupts good morals. There's no alternative. It's God or it's man. Which will you follow?